Thanks so much, Ben. Please keep that passage open. If you've closed your Bibles, it's on page 300, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, you've given us all Scripture, all of it for us, for our learning, to give us insight about ourselves and insight about you, about what it means to know you, about what it means to be your people, about what it means to live in this world and honor you. So, Father, we ask that you will help us as we come to your word And we ask that the same Holy Spirit who inspired this word will inspire us, speak into our hearts, and move our wills to obey you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that we need to do as Christians is to understand how to cope with tragedy. We need to understand how to cope and live authentically as Christians when life goes well. We struggle with that. But we also need a way of dealing with tragedy. Because for some of us, at some point in our life, tragedy will strike. Something will happen for some of us. Some things may already have happened to us where it seems as if everything that illuminated your life, that brought color, that brought joy, that brought meaning and purpose has drained away and life has become utterly gray, lifeless, meaningless. How should we react to tragedy that we experience as Christians? You see, we're not stoics. We are not to respond by simply saying, that's just one of those things. We're to respond as followers of Jesus Christ. And one of the appropriate response for Christians is to respond by lament. To take the things that we're experiencing and see them for what they are, which is tragic, and then respond by lamenting, an outpouring of grief. And that's what we have here in this passage from 1 Samuel. It is David's lament. And I want you to notice the depth of that. It comes out in all kinds of ways. But one of the places where it comes out is in verse 21. Where where David makes reference to the place where this tragic battle has taken place. And Saul, the king, and Jonathan, his son, have been killed. And in verse 21, he says, Mountains of Gilboa. May you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. 
I remember many years ago hearing some news, tragic news, news that I never expected to hear. That affected me very, very deeply and personally. And I remember that sense almost of affront. Because I went outside and the sun was still shining. The sky was blue. And that seemed to me to be so incongruous, to be so unacceptable. The whole of nature ought to have been registering the extent of the tragedy. And that's what David is saying, what he's echoing in verse 21. He's saying, I want this to be marked, even in the physical creation, because it's of such a death. So great a tragedy. Nature shouldn't be indifferent to it. The intensity of tragedy. Tragedy for some of us may be of such a depth where we may even wonder if life is worth living at all because of what's happened. I want you to notice three things about this, this, um, this lament of, of David. Um, but, but before we do that, I want to ask the question, which some of you may be thinking, why was David so distraught? This is a lament for Jonathan, and we can understand that because as Ben has told us, and as we can see in this poem, this lament, Jonathan was the great friend of David. But what about Saul, the king? Saul had become David's enemy. He tried to kill David. He'd exiled him. David could no longer live at home. He lived as a fugitive and a renegade. Saul, the king, had wrecked David's marriage. He'd taken David's wife and given her to somebody else, because as kings you could do things like that. He destroyed or at least he'd done everything he could to destroy David's life and even to take his life away from him. What's more, David knew that the future didn't lie with Saul because David had already been appointed by God as the successor to Saul. The future lay with David, so why was David so distraught over Saul? And that brings us to these three things about this lament. It's a lament because what David is talking about is a spiritual tragedy. Verse 19, a gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty are fallen. Saul was God's anointed king. He was the one who represented God to the people who was to rule on God's behalf and therefore all the hopes and dreams of Israel were tied up with Saul. He was the Lord's anointed, which in the New Testament is translated as Christ. He was God's anointed king. The hopes of Israel were linked with him, but not only that, God's very reputation was tied in with Saul as the king. When Saul did well, then God's name was honored because 
the king of Israel was victorious. But when Saul was defeated, then as far as the nations around were concerned, the God of Israel was a lesser God. He was demeaned and diminished, which is why in verse 20, Paul, uh, David writes, Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. I don't want them to know about this because they will gloat over the God of Israel. What's happened is a spiritual tragedy. But not only is it a spiritual tragedy, it's a human tragedy. Two lives have been lost, the lives of two remarkable people, two people who've done so much for Israel. When we first meet Saul in 1 Samuel, he's head and shoulders physically above everybody else, but also in terms of character. He's not greedy for power. In fact, he tries to hide away when they try to make him king. And he'd achieved so much for Israel in terms of establishing their security and setting the foundations for their prosperity. He'd been victorious in battle. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the boy of Jonathan did not turn back, the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. And then over in verse 24, daughters of Jerusalem, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. Israel is on a trajectory that is improving because of Saul and because of Jonathan. Both of these men were remarkable and gifted, and their death was a human tragedy. They had so much to offer. They were, you could say, irreplaceable. A spiritual tragedy, a human tragedy. But perhaps above all, what we see here in this lament is a personal tragedy depicted for us. David had lost a friend. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. When I was in my 20s, which I can just about remember. Four things happened that changed my life. First one was my mother died. Second one was my love life was in complete disarray. The third thing was my best friend was killed. And the fourth thing was I had an encounter with God. Four things that changed my life. And I remember after hearing the news that my friend and friend had been killed, and I asked myself the question, I wonder which is worse, to lose love? My love life was in disarray. Or to lose a friend? See, it is possible to have a depth of friendship that's deeper 
sometimes even than that in an erotic sexual relationship. The kind of relationship that's being described here is that kind of friendship. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. C.S. Lewis in his chapter on friendship in his book, The Four Loves, makes the comment that sometimes people will say that friendship of this kind of intensity between two people of the same sex must be erotic in some kind of way. And so we must assume that there's a subtext here in the relationship between David and Jonathan that there's a homoerotic element. Lewis says, people who say things like that Actually, to say that says more about the people who say it than it does about David and Jonathan. That assumption that sex in the intensity of a relationship must be there is a very modern thing. But not only does Lewis say that it tells us something about us rather than about what we're reading about, he goes on to say that people who say that, that where there's an intensity of relationship, it must have a sexual component. He says people who say that demonstrate they've never experienced that level of intensity of friendship. I want to come back to friendship in a moment, but let me just summarize what's going on here. David laments because it's a spiritual tragedy. Sometimes some of you will experience spiritual tragedy in your family, in your friendships. And sometimes the appropriate response is to lament. Some of you may experience at times human tragedy and the appropriate response is to lament. And sometimes it will be very personal. There are times when, as Christians, it's right for us to lament. When Peter says in the New Testament, in his letter, we weep, but we weep as those who do not, uh, we do not weep as those who have no hope. Notice he says that we weep. Weeping, grieving is an appropriate response. I want to suggest, though, that there's something else that we can get from this lament here in 2 Samuel. Not only an insight into the experience of tragedy and how lament can be an appropriate response to tragedy, but we can learn something here in this event about the future. We get a glimpse in this about something far greater. You know, one of the things about the Bible is that all the strands in the Bible, some of them are very slender. And they appear and then they disappear and they cross over one another and they change form in all kinds of ways, like the pieces of thread in a tapestry. Some of them are much bigger themes, and we can trace those out much more easily. But whether they're the threads or whether they're the thick themes, all of them come together 
to speak of one story, the great story of the Bible. Think of it like this. The Bible tells the story of another king who is killed by his enemies on a hill. And the response of his friends is to weep and lament. And the place where it happened is marked. That other king, of course, is the king. It's Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, who dies on Calvary, the place of the skull, and his followers weep. But those events of Calvary and Gilboa illustrate a really important principle, a general principle, which is the tragedy is central to the Bible's narrative. And the Bible's narrative about how God achieves his purposes runs entirely in the opposite direction from the way the world's narrative runs. It is through tragedy, it is through death, it is through defeat, the victory comes. And so we look at Calvary, and we don't have to weep about Calvary anymore. Because we know that what happened in the death of Jesus, when the king died, the mighty one, that tragedy was actually the reversal of tragedy. It's where death and sin were overturned, where that greatest of all tragedies, that disorder of our relationship with God was dealt with. We get a glimpse of that in Gilboa. The death of Saul and Jonathan paves the way for David to become king. The death of Jesus makes it possible for us to come to God and call him Father. That's how the narrative works. That is how God works. There's a glimpse here then of the future. There's also a glimpse here not just of the great cosmic reversal of sin and death and the overturning of those things. It's a reminder here that one day all our tragedies will be reversed. All our tears will be wiped away. There's a glimpse here, even in this tragedy and this lament, a pointer to the day when lament will be turned to praise because of the victory of Jesus through his death. So we can catch a hint of the future, the great event of the cross on the events of Gilboa. But something else about the future. I want to suggest that the relationship between David and Jonathan gives us a pointer into life in the new creation. Heaven, if you want to put it like that. Let's ask the question. I know it's the kind of question that you ask regularly. What will our relationships be like in heaven, in the new creation? I, I, you, as you go out and have your coffee in the morning, I know that's a topic of conversation all the time. How will we relate to each other? I mean, think about it. Jesus says there's no marriage in heaven. 
Just understand that. There's no sex in the new creation. Some of you are thinking, what? (laughs) What? Do I really want to go to a place where there's no marriage? How boring. If there's no sexual intimacy in the new creation, do I really want to be a part of that world? And I, I, I mean, does it mean that heaven is going to be more boring than a half-decent marriage? Some of you think that, don't you? Be honest. You struggle with this. A couple of things to think about. Have you noticed that marriage excludes? you notice that? I hope it does. According to the Bible, marriage is meant to be a relationship that excludes. In the marriage service, if you're married in church, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. And again, according to the Bible's view of marriage, it's a relationship between a man and a woman. That excludes as well, doesn't it? Also, the way that the Bible talks about, in the New Testament anyway, about marriage, that one flesh relationship, is seen as a picture not of our relationship with each other, but of a picture of the exclusive relationship we have as the people of God with Jesus Christ. Marriage is a very, very inadequate, but a real depiction of the relationship that the people of God have with Jesus Christ. In the new creation, he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And that's an exclusive relationship. Forsaking all others. Loving him alone. Marriage is a way for us to think about our relationship with Jesus in the new creation. And that begins here. So what will our relationship be like in the new creation? You're still asking the question, aren't you? Well, let's start with Jesus. Jesus was the most complete human being who ever lived, but he wasn't married. Married, what does that teach us? Well, I think one of the things it teaches us is that it isn't necessary to be in a sexual relationship to be complete. But even more so, it's appointed to the future. There is no marriage in the new creation. So if not marriage in the new creation, then what? One of the most powerful things I think that Jesus, powerful ways that Jesus describes his disciples and us is by using the word friend. John 15 Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. He goes on to say, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. I want to suggest it's the language of friendship that gives us an insight into our relationships in the new creation. And just in case you think that doesn't sound very enticing. Think about the intensity that a relationship between friends can be. 
You get it in Jonathan here. A love more wonderful than that of women. It is possible, of course, for married people to be each other's friends. Some of you are married, and you might well say to me, my wife or my husband is my best friend. But that's not always the case. And you can have a very successful marriage and a very happy marriage, and your wife or your husband isn't necessarily your best friend. There is an intensity of relationships in friendship that can be even greater than the relationship between a husband and a wife. Not only that, but friendship, Lewis says, faces outwards. Lovers, he says, the way of depicting lovers is it's face to face. They're always talking about their love. They're looking, at least in the early years, cast your mind back. You know, looking into each other's eyes, telling each other how much they love each other, all that kind of stuff. It's face to face. But for friends, it's side by side. Sharing some common interest, for example. Focused on something. And in the new creation, the focus for all of us will be Jesus. That will be the thing that binds us together in that exclusive relationship. But for us, side by side. An intensity of relationship Friendship faces outwards, and friendship is inclusive. Some of you remember that interview that Princess Diana gave, and she was describing the catastrophe of her marriage and how it had broken down, and I don't know whether you remember, she famously said the trouble is there were three people in our marriage. Generally speaking, three people in a marriage is not a good thing. Take note, those of you who are married, if there are two of you in a marriage, bringing in a third person, not a good idea. Marriage excludes. But with friends, it's different, isn't it? It's quite different. Imagine you have a deep, deep friendship, and you share a common interest, and then you come across somebody else who shares that passion and you say, you too? You also? And they join your friendship. Your friendship hasn't been diminished by the addition of a third person. It has grown, developed. And of course, it can be across the sexes as well, can't it? Men and women can be friends. Much more to be said about this. I simply want you to reflect on this. That the relationship of David and Jonathan gives us a profound insight, a glimpse into the relationships we will have in the new creation. If you like, the new creation will consist of a community of friends who are in love with Jesus, in relationship with him, in a way that's illustrated by marriage here and then. 
So we've looked at lament. We've got a glimpse of the future in the victory of Christ. And a glimpse of the future too in terms of relationships in the new creation. Let, let me pull this together and so what? <laughs> you know, what do we do with this? I mean, after all, we live in this age, and so marriage still continues. Sexual intimacy is still a thing for us. It's still important. And marriage, according to the writer of the Hebrews in verse 13 and verse 4, marriage, he says, should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Marriage is important because we live in this age. But at the same time, the age to come has already broken in and we are to demonstrate the age to come. We have to do both those things. We live in this world, in this age, where the age to come has already broken in. And remember, marriage is not going to be a part of the age to come. So in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, those who are married should live as if they are not. By which he is saying, not you can neglect your marriage. That is not the point he's making. If you're married, you need to work really hard at your marriage, okay? I hope you heard that. But remember that marriage is passing away, so have the right perspective. Marriage isn't everything. So for the people of God, we need to honor marriage, but we also need to reflect the fact that sexual intimacy is passing away, and what's the future going to be like? It's a community of friends. Community of friends. So I want to suggest that if we are to be as the church of Jesus Christ, an outpost of the future, we too should be seeking to become a community of friends and that may mean some changes in some of our churches. Because in some churches, in some churches, at least as far as what we've taught, we've been very hot on marriage. We've not always been so good at promoting friendship. That's an imbalance. Remember, that the relationship will that will last into eternity is not marriage but friendship. And remember, we are to demonstrate the future. We should be a community of friends. And I think for those of us who are married, there's perhaps a particular responsibility. Let me put it like this. Maybe we should invest at least as much in friendship as we do in our marriages. That's not to say you shouldn't invest in your marriage. And some of you may need to invest more in your marriage than you're currently doing. It's not an either or. But maybe some of us need to repent of our idolatry, our idolization of marriage and family. We demonstrate the future in terms of our relationships with one another by being a community of friends. So what have we looked at this morning? We've looked at lament. That is an appropriate response. 
But we've also seen that lament isn't the end. The victory of, the, of Christ on the cross means there's a day coming, a day of resurrection, when all tears will be wiped away and all tragedies reversed. And we've seen too that we are to be a glimpse of the future when marriage has passed away and what will remain is a community of friends. Let's pray. Father, please help us to be the people that you've called us to be and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing, so please just stand.